0: currently leaning on a giant round stuffed animal for support for my arm
1: well and also we have fortified our couch against a cat attack
0: yeah um i'm pretty sure the cat won't be in here and i i don't even think we should include it in the bloopers if the cat is yeah but we might say it at the end of the episode if we manage to make it all the way without the cat jumping on the couch yeah Hello, and welcome to Foss and Crafts, a
1: podcast about free software, free culture, and making things together
0: with my co-host Morgan
1: and my co-host Christine.
0: So what's the topic of today?
1: Today we are going to be talking about Lisp.
0: That's a thing I have. You People listening to this show probably notice I have a Lisp, but, uh, but not
1: that kind of Lisp. Not
0: that kind of Lisp. We're talking about Lisp, the family of programming languages, basically.
1: Yeah. So let's just jump right in. What is Lisp?
0: Well, it's a family of highly configurable and extensible languages that all kind of share a kind of minimal structure. The The core idea is it's all about, you hear this term, S-expressions, which stands for symbolic expressions. Um, but what it really means is that you the the defining feature of lisp is that it has this structure that i guess people associate with there being lots of parentheses so one of the joking expansions of lisp is lots of irritating superfluous parentheses which we're going to talk about at the end It's i like you like and it's also not a requirement yes you can kind of see things that have that kind of structure where like the the programming language is made out of lists of these symbols and it has that elegant kind of minimalism to it, all tend to be called LISPs.
1: Yeah, so first we're going to flesh out the history of LISP. So for the early history of LISP, we start in 1956 to 1958, when John McCarthy comes up with the key ideas that would become LISP.
0: That's right. We should actually just link to the article that he wrote. He kind of talks about his thinking at the time and why he was thinking about LISP processing. Which is what LISP stands for, by the way. Forgot to say that earlier. Basically, it,
1: it, it just stands for list processing?
0: Yeah, that's what LISP stands and for. And it's
1: just a one elision?
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: I did not know that. I figured it was an acronym.
0: No, the lots of irritating superfluous parentheses is a backronym that people who want to make fun of LISP use. So basically, for various reasons, he was exploring a whole bunch of different ideas about kind of list processing as being the structure of the language and, you know, wasn't anticipating that it would have the look that it currently has. But the focus was very much so on the structured representation of the program. Yeah. So in
1: 1958, John McCarthy is able to write Lisp in Lisp, so in eval, to show how powerful it is. And he manages to do this in just half a page of code.
0: That's right. And in fact, half a page of code uh, in a paper. Right? So it was not actually have a page of code to be executed on a computer, because at this point, there wasn't yet any computer program that could run Lisp. But...
1: Then Steve Russell implements it, even though McCarthy tells him he misunderstood.
0: Like, Steve Russell saying, like, oh, I, I think we could actually just take that program you wrote in the paper and just, like, translated that into machine code, and, like, it would work. And McCarthy's like, oh, you're you've mistaken you know, theory for, like, a practical implementation. No. And and then Steve Russell just goes and does it. And John McCarthy's like, oh. And, like, that's the history of the first Lisp interpreter is just this, yeah, just this kind of stubborn, oh, well, you know what? I do think that this theory, we could just write it down to make the computer do that. And it turned out...
1: Let's just make this happen.
0: It does work. Yeah.
1: So Lisp was originally supposed to have expressions which you know look more like traditional math syntax but the parentheses were popular and then they ended up sticking around
0: yeah so for reasons that have to do with lisps extensibility it ends up being really useful to actually program in kind of the parenthetical style the expectation was that nobody would want to do that but like a couple things happen. like You start using the parenthetical style for a while, and you're like, eh, this isn't so that bad. You gotta, and it, that also tends to happen when you have a- editor tooling that really supports things. But it's really the full extensibility of Lisp, the fact that you can kind of write language extensions so easily in it, which are related to that syntax, that makes it kind of popular and stick around.
1: Yeah. So we will end up talking about alternative representations of Lisp towards the end of the episode but what is it that makes lisp so powerful
0: yeah so if you've got your program is literally the data structure that you're operating on right like you're what you're looking at in most programming languages when you're typing in text i mean and in a few exceptions with like a visual programming language maybe like wiring up some nodes and stuff like that you kind of have this disconnect between what you're putting on the screen of like those characters. And it's almost kind of like you're typing in this magical language. and But what you're looking at in Lisp is like really kind of the same thing that's fed to the, the program. And in fact, you can quote entire structured Lisp structures and then just operate it on it as normal data. And because of that, that led to the kind of invention of Lisp macros through kind of A history involving things that are probably not important in this episode, like FXPers and Common Lisp style macros. And then, like, yeah, this is definitely not the whole Lisp 1 versus Lisp 2 debate. This
1: sounds like it could be a whole episode on its own.
0: Yeah, probably. So, the important thing this is going to sound really bold, but it's true. You can embed literally any other programming paradigm. Inside of Lisp. So what you end up is the power of composable domain-specific languages, and you don't have to write a bunch of separate ones, you can just kind of create these sub-languages which are integrated with all the other pieces. And that's possible to do without kind of having to ask the um, people who made, you know, the the core language, like, could you please give me this feature? Because the users are able to write those features themselves.
1: Mm -hmm. Now we're going to wade into the middle history of Lisp. Lisp was very important at the MIT AI lab and a lot of other research institutions, right?
0: Yeah, basically for a couple of decades, like Lisp was actually one of the most popular programming languages out there, right? And this is kind of before programming really much more hits the mainstream. But tons, because it's so easy to experiment with ideas on top of Lisp and even write a Lisp on top of a Lisp, let alone extend the language it's kind of a ripe territory for experimentation and um, at like the artificial intelligence lab at MIT and at a bunch of other research institutions around, it just was kind of the most logical thing to do was to use LISP because of its expressive power to explore programming language ideas. And so a lot of the things that we have today, like automatic memory management, well garbage collection and stuff like that, having like, you know, kind of the, command line interpreter like shell that you can enter things in, the REPL. And like tons tons of other features appeared in Lisp first because it was, you know, a really good place to start playing with those ideas. And as kind of the artificial intelligence boom of the nineteen eighties was growing, kind of the the general idea is, well, you write everything in Lisp. You know, that's just the logical thing that you should do. And since Lisp was kind of slow on some of the machines like the, um, the PDP uh, series of computers and stuff in comparison to what people wanted, there was this work to build something called the Lisp machine. And so um, since Lisp is usually, but not always a dynamically uh, typed language, you have to kind of like, if you try adding two things together and you have to decide if like one of them's a string and one of them's, a um, a number like in any strongly typed language, which even dynamically typed LISPs are, you won't have that add happen and then corrupt programming memory. Instead, it'll be rejected. But the question is whether or not it gets, you know, rejected at runtime or at compile time. Now, today, people tend to interpret the power of statically compiled languages as like having two powerful properties. One is preventing bugs as in terms of being able to detect them ahead of time. And one of them is that's how you make programs go fast. But what was interesting about the list machines is that they had something called tagged architecture. So the computer, like the hardware itself, knew like how to be able to, you know, the addition instruction actually knew what types were being fed into it. You didn't need to say first check to see what kind of thing this is and then do that, which meant it was able to be really fast. And even things like garbage collection were implemented in hardware, which kind of meant that like Lisp was able to be extraordinarily fast. So you're saying
1: Lisp machines are actual phys- or were actual physical machines.
0: That's right. We're and not
1: just talking about software here.
0: That's right. And actually kind of the end of the AI lab partly happens because of, well, yeah, so we put AI winter on here and that the AI winter is basically because kind of the dreams of artificial intelligence dried up. But even right before that, what ended up happening was the MIT Artificial Intelligence Laboratory. That's where like the list machine designs came out of. And basically, as a, the funding was starting to dry up for like the AI lab, there was this split about how the lab and that kind of work should be funded. And um, this is actually, we can't really fully go into here, but this is kind of the history of early GNU is that there was a split between Lisp machines incorporated and symbolics where symbolics decided to take everything fully proprietary. And this is also the time at which software became copyrightable. It wasn't before then. And so basically this fight over what to happen with the AI lab leads to GNU happening partly because like the AI lab falls apart.
1: So you just jumped ahead a little bit, but while you're talking about the start of GNU, how did the decision for GNU to go with Unix for portability affect Lisp?
0: Um, yeah, so GNU went with basically the Unix design, or maybe we should say not Unix, because GNU is not Unix, right? Yeah. And actually, I asked uh, Richard Stallman this directly, you know, well, why, why didn't you go with a Lisp machine type design? Uh, why, why didn't you have Lisp be kind of the core of the entire system? And RMS said, well, that's because, you know, I needed something that could run on basically any machine. And Lisp could only really run fast on these, you know, kind of special machines at the time. And, like, it did run really fast there. Like, even the graphics drivers were written in Lisp. And so Unix was kind of, like, famous at the time for being widely portable.
1: But GNU was always meant to be C and Lisp, right?
0: Yeah, so the if you read kind of the early GNU papers it was kind of like oh we're going to have this kind of c core but like a lot of the interesting work is going to be sitting is either going to have lisp integrated with it or lisp sitting alongside it and like emacs being the first GNU project basically kind of embodied that
1: yeah so we're just going to rewind back in history a little bit to the part that christine skipped over That is Richard Gabriel's series of essays on worse is better, right?
0: Yeah, that's where Richard Gabriel kind of started basically at a conference ended up giving this presentation that was not meant to be specifically just about the worse is better. It was at the LISP Symposium, but he kind of says, well, it's very likely that Unix is going to win and not the LISP machine and like kind of stuns everyone in the audience. And he said, like, you know, there's the right thing versus new jersey style where like the list people were like the right thing right and think very carefully about the design you build the right system you build the right architecture there's the kind of new jersey style of things which is like you it's kind of really more that the unix thing is kind of like you get the easy thing out and it gets to the market and everybody kind of adopts that basically like at the time everyone knew that unix had a whole bunch of the problems who were like serious language researchers but you know richard gabriel saying oh hey that doesn't necessarily mean that we'll succeed and oppose to them and this was like a very upsetting presentation at this conference and richard gabriel was running his own list company it's not like he was like pro list not winning He, he
1: wasn't advocating for yeah unix or anything
0: anyway this kind of you know proceeded and like kind of went along with the ai winter with the ai winter being like oh you know there were all these promises of what ai was going to be able to do and hey like they're not delivering on them so all this funding dried up and like therefore a lot of the interest in list machines also dried up and all those companies kind of you know fell by the wayside yeah and so richard gabriel also writes these series of essays kind of back and forth where he actually created a pseudonym to argue with himself telling himself that better is better and stuff like that and and publishing it uh, and then, like, have these back and forth. It's an interesting very convoluted. Yeah, but this back and forth is is kind of important to history because this is something that you hear a lot of technologists, including me, often be like, oh, you know, the right thing didn't win. Um, So GNU kind of choosing to be a not-UNIX was in some ways because it was doing... It it did go with the worse is better philosophy, but like hoped to thread in the right thing at the right places.
1: It was with the hope to meet people where they are.
0: I mean, in a certain sense, yeah, and also meet the the machines that people were running where they are, and yeah. and so on and so forth. Um, well,
1: and if you want something accessible, having it being on a machine that you know is more accessible is the way to do that, right? It,
0: commodity hardware, right? And there's, I mean it would be possible, like, if, the, if, if time went differently, it could have been that hardware that was more favorable to Lisp and dynamic languages in general might have really taken off. And um, I'm going to throw in this little bit of side history that we didn't write down, but I think it's kind of interesting because right now people run a separate uh, processor on their computer for, like, graphics, right? Mm-hmm. Well, could you do that same type of thing to speed up dynamic languages? And the answer is Yes. In uh, I think it was the 90s or maybe it was the late 80s. i pretty sure it was the 90s. Uh, Symbolics, which was the big proprietary Lisp company, um, when they realized that they were not able to compete with, like, by making their own hardware anymore, ended up uh, producing something called the Mac Ivory Chip. And what this did is that it put a coprocessor on your computer that was able to run Lisp really fast. Now, this would work for JavaScript. It would work for Python and Ruby and everything like that. But such a thing could happen today, right? Like, somebody could make a... And there are actually some RISC-V designs that are looking at tagged architecture again for a different reason. But it's possible that that could come back. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that's all a big aside, but...
1: So, that's the very brief history of LISP. So, let's talk now about some of the different kinds of LISPs.
0: Yeah. um, I mean, I guess... it. So, this is... Moving kind of from the past to kind of today, right? So, for way far in the past, there were kind of two brands of Lisp that were competing way back in the day, which was like Mac, Mac Lisp and Interlisp. Mac Lisp being like these series of Lisps being developed by like the AI lab and kind of comparative um, areas. And, that, and, and Interlisp being this this other brand of Lisp that I that kind of diverged in some ways. And when the Lisp machines happened and um, there ended up being this thing called Lisp Machine Lisp, but you know, there was this kind of fracturing the different LISPs that weren't compatible. And so there was a standardization effort that was created to create a version that was called Common Lisp. And that happened, but there hasn't been another revision of Common Lisp since. So Common Lisp is this kind of much bigger language of Lisp. If you get like the Common Lisp book by Guy L. Steele, it's huge. I have both editions on my desk, and like, they're like enormous. They're beautiful books, but they're huge. Um, but then there's kind of this competing version of Lisp called Scheme, um, and this all ties in with the Lisp one versus Lisp two debate, which you can kind of read up on on the internet. We're not going to get into here unless we do a future episode,
1: or maybe put some resources in the show notes.
0: Yeah, but Scheme ended up being like kind of a more academic Lisp in that it's also much more elegant. Like the rules of Scheme are much smaller. Like the the especially r5 rs and r7 rs small which are not important those are basically two different versions of scheme that have come out are very small specs that kind of are very compact and what's there so common lisp and scheme are not compatible and in fact many schemes are not compatible with each other fully Um, so if you've heard us talk about racket and guile those are two kinds of schemes Mm -hmm. but there's also common lisp which In theory, has a number of different implementations, but I think really these days, everybody uses SBCL, which is called Steel Bank Common Lisp. But kind of the two lists that have survived the longest, I should say, are Common Lisp and Scheme. And you're probably going to be either using one of those, or you might be using Emacs Lisp, which we've done episodes about Emacs. Yep. And that's how you configure Emacs.
1: And you might be using Emacs Lisp without realizing that it's a programming language even.
0: Yeah, that's because you that's just how you configure your Emacs is mm-hmm. you just put some Emacs Lisp. But um, there have been some newer LISPs that have kind of had some success. So Clojure is probably the one that everyone kind of knows the most. It's done a lot of interesting things for functional programming. Um, not everyone loves that it has this... That's built on top of the Java Virtual Machine, which was like a big selling point back in the day, and mm, I think it's not that big of a selling point anymore. And then there are some other lists that are kind of clever that compiled other things. So Hi is one I worked on a little bit back in the day. So I, I kind of wrote the first, like the first tutorial for the language. It's evolved a bunch since, and that was a list that compiles to Python's abstract syntax tree. Mm-hmm. And the amazing thing about it was Hi, we were eight, like. Paul Tagliamonte, who ran the project, like showed off, like, hey, I'm able to backport language features that, in theory, were not going to appear until Python 3 to Python 2 and have the same syntax for both because of um, high being extensible by being a Lisp. And Fennel by um, Technomancy is an awesome Lisp that compiles to Lua. Mm-hmm. Um, and aside from that, WebAssembly, the text format, is basically kind of a sort of Lisp. This is actually true of like a number of compilers, but very oftentimes, um, like intermediate stage of the compiler, like you've got the one that you're typing in, and then there's a version that comes out to be binary. But in between, there's actually something that often looks like Lisp, um, and WebAssembly just uses that as its text format. So, I've a friend and I actually kind of ran a little user group called It Was a Me. And we kind of, where we were experimenting with entering WebAssembly by hand, and you can program in that. It's not recommended, (laughs) but you can. Um, But is it a LISP? Well, sort of, kind of not. Um, I mean, the thing that every LISP has in common really is, like, the structure. So I think it kind of is a LISP, but it's not how you program most LISPs. I'm going to throw one more thing in here, which is that we talked about LISPs being dynamically typed, That's not necessarily the case. So Typed Racket is a statically typed LISP. Um, It interfaces with dynamically typed LISPs and is slow in between. But also Alexis King wrote a really interesting version of Haskell that was called uh, Hackett that was statically typed as well. So it's possible, totally possible to have statically typed LISPs. That is possible.
1: Mm -hmm. So how would one get into LISP today if they were so inclined?
0: Well... I mean I think you've got a few paths. The most commonly recommended path is learn Emacs, which
1: Is that the most commonly recommended or is that the one that you most commonly recommend?
0: No, it's actually the most commonly recommended. <laughs> so this is this is a, like I love Emacs, like and I I would like to make Emacs a lot easier, but it's it's actually kind of I mean, we have did a whole episode of But Emacs recently, right? Mm-hmm. And part of that was because Emacs kind of has a notorious learning curve.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is not easy to pick up. In fact, the whole point of the episode we did recently about Emacs was Morgan's been afraid of doing this for so long that she finally learned it and <laughs> right. got over that fear.
0: So when we taught the workshops, we took a different approach. Actually, we chose a specific version of LISP. Because of a specific feature that it came with. What was that?
1: We chose to use Racket for those workshops for, well, I guess kind of two features. One was that it had a text editor, so we didn't have to teach people Emacs or another editor in order to use it. Because it had Dr. Racket. And two was that it had a picture language. So we could teach people the basics of programming without having to rely on math. For as a universal language, because pictures are also a universal language.
0: Now, there's no reason there can't be better Lisp support in other text editors. So, and actually, I think in VS Code, there's actually something called Magic Racket, which I've never used, but is allegedly pretty good for writing Racket. And Vim does have support for Lisp as well, although it's not quite as good as Emacs. Actually, Partly in response to some of the stuff I was saying, it, didn't, it I'm not going to claim credit, but I'm going to say that I, I, a talk that I gave, I think, helped convince Ricardo Wormus to do a project that was pretty cool, but kind of hasn't really finished, I think. Like, it's it's not quite at the level that Dr. Racket is, but I don't... It's called Guile Studio, um, and it basically, like, it starts up Emacs configured to be easier to use off the bat, and it has a picture language nice and yeah uh and it looks a lot like dr Rackett.
1: yeah and if you've listened to either the digital humanities workshop episode or just know me then you know i'm a fan of uh ways of teaching programming that don't require math
0: yeah but maybe that actually kind of previews what an, an upcoming episode which is actually kind of already out there material from the past but we think we're going to kind of try to make an audio version of it
1: yeah so christine and i gave a conference talk at fosdem called lisp but beautiful lisp for everyone and we're going to kind of take a lot of the content from that as a follow-up episode Mm -hmm. for this
0: oh you know what i'm gonna say there's one other way that that's a good idea as in terms of learning lisp well First of all, you should learn LISP by building something with it, like doing mm-hmm. something cool. And one of the best projects to, and we re- just recently had an episode about it, is Geeks, right? Like mm-hmm. that's actually, writing packages for Geeks is very feasible. Like it's it's like a enough of a bite-sized uh, task that a lot of people have said, hey, this is my first time learning LISP or even programming at all was contributing to Geeks. So that's that's a good idea. G-U-I-X. Listen to our previous episode about it. Yeah. So now that we've already spoiled a future episode, which, you know, if you listen to this show, you know, it is a common pattern of a, on this show for us to talk about what a bad pattern it is. But we just did it again. Yep. And uh, I is don't know. Is that seriously what
1: we're ending on?
0: I guess that's what we're... Do you have anything better to end on?
1: Oh, yes. We successfully defended our uh, podcast against cat interruptions today
0: we did oh my gosh missy is, did not jump up on the, on the couch and how did that happen
1: well two things one we gave her wet food before we started recording and two we put barrier pillows in the middle around where the microphone is so that she didn't just jump on the microphone
0: yeah oh wait there was one more thing we were gonna announce actually Oh yeah,
1: the Hack and Craft.
0: On the day of recording. There was just another Hack and Craft, but there's...
1: Although it has been a while since we talked about the Hack and Crafts on the podcast, so maybe we should just give a refresher on what those are.
0: Why don't you give a refresher on what those are?
1: So we have a community event thing that we do alongside the podcast called Hack and Craft, which is like somewhere between a stitch and bitch or a craft circle and a user group it's virtual everyone gets together on a big blue button call and everyone is working on their own individual projects whether that is a craft project a digital art project hacking project or whatever and everyone works on their own thing while we generally have conversation about Various things in free and open source software, free culture, etc. Mm-hmm.
0: But we've been talking about having a variant of the the thing that we talked about from the very beginning, basically, and it just hasn't and happened.
1: Basically, so far, these things have been leaning more towards like a craft circle and a birds of a feather, really. And so we want to lean a little bit more into the user group idea where... We occasionally do Hack and Crafts with kind of a pre-prepared, like, demo or presentation or something occasionally.
0: So, I guess I'm doing the first one. If you like this episode, you'll probably like it. I'm going to be giving a tutorial on how to program in Scheme. And could be a multi-part. might be an all-in-one. If we do it a multi-part, I'm not sure, but by the end of the tutorial whether it's one or two part. And and we are hoping to record this also. By the end of the tutorial, I will show off how to write scheme inside of scheme in 30 lines of code. Yeah. Cool. All right. All right. Bye, everybody.
1: Bye. Thanks.
0: Foss and Crafts is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License.
1: It's hosted by Morgan Lemmerweber and Christine Lemmerweber.
0: The intro music is composed by Christine Lemmerweber, meaning myself, in Milky Tracker, and is released under the same license as the show.
1: The outro music is Enchanted Tiki 86, composed by Alex Smith of The Cynic Project, and is waived into the public domain under CC01.0. See cynicmusic.com
0: for more information. You can get in contact with us on the Fediverse, Foss and Crafts, at octodon.social, on Twitter as at Foss and Crafts, or you can email us, podcast at fossandcrafts.org. We
1: also have a chat room. Join our community on hash Foss and Crafts on irc.libera.chat.
0: If you'd like to support the show, you can donate at patreon.com forward slash Foss and Crafts. That's it for this week. Until next time, stay free
1: and stay crafty.
0: Well, that's it. We made it. We made it. All right. M- Missy's not in the room. That that was a we made it. But.
1: Yeah.